Welcome to the Explorer's Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds. Good evening. Tonight at the Roundtable, we are delighted to have Dr. Sarah Evans and Dr. Katie Parker here to talk with us about the world-renowned Royal Geographical Society in London, England. For nearly 200 years, the Society has served as a professional organization for those advancing the study of geography and exploration, and it has had countless well-known members through the decades such as Ernest Shackleton, David Livingstone, Charles Darwin, Robert Falcon Scott, Richard Burden, and Percy Fawcett. The Society's collections consist of over 2 million documents, including maps, photographs, paintings, periodicals, artifacts, and books that span over 500 years of geographical discoveries and exploration, and it is the Society's goal to preserve these documents for the benefit of future generations. Dr. Sarah Evans serves as the Research and Collections Engagement Manager at the Society, and Dr. Katie Parker is the Cartographic Collections Manager. Dr. Evans and Dr. Parker, thank you both for joining us here at the Roundtable tonight. How did you first become interested in geographical studies and exploration? And how did you both initially get involved in the Royal Geographical Society? So uh, I'm Sarah Evans. So I'm Research and Collections Engagement Manager here at the IGSIB team now. And I first got interested in this. Um, well, first, to start with, really, it was when I was doing history um, as an undergraduate. Don't tell anybody. I didn't start off as a geographer. Um, I got really interested in Gertrude Bell, who's a late 19th, early 20th explorer as part of some of the studies I was doing on the history of the modern Middle East. And just thought she was really fascinating. And so then... I got the opportunity to apply for a PhD studentship, a doctoral studentship on the Society's collections, which was all about um, finding out more about women's involvement with Royal Geographical Society supported expeditions, um, history of exploration. I thought, oh, nifty. Well, I know about at least one of them. I'm going to give that a shot. They won't give it to me. I'm a historian. I, you know, I have to pretend to be a geographer. I was really surprised and pleased when they did. And that was... Oh, nearly 13 years ago, exactly. Um, so I did, this was through something called a Collaborative Doctoral Award, which is a funding scheme we're involved in for people to do PhDs on the Society's collections. I did my uh, my PhD here and then never really left. So I got a job working in the collections and then moved upstairs to the Research and Higher Education Department where I am today. Um, so yeah, that, that's me. So hi, I'm Katie Parker. I'm the Cartographic Collections Manager here at the RGS IBG. I actually just started that position in February, so I'm kind of shiny and new here at the RGS. Uh, I have a long-standing interest, though, in the history of exploration and of geography. I, like Sarah, am uh, actually trained as a historian. Um, so again, don't tell anyone. We have a lot of infiltrators here at the Society. Uh, so my research focuses on the production of geographic knowledge about the Pacific Ocean in the long 18th century, so looking at the century prior to James Cook's expeditions. Um, so I was in England doing a lot of uh, research for my own PhD uh, program and became very interested specifically in the history of maps and mapping um, because you need maps and charts to be able to sail over the Pacific. Um, so then I started to work with a rare maps dealer based in San Diego um, and I worked researching his online digital collection um, for several years before coming here and working with our uh, very large both physical and digital collection that we have here at the RGS. Uh, but I became a fellow of the RGS as soon as I could uh, as I finished my PhD in 2016 uh, because I had long respected the RGS and its history um, with the history of exploration and its ties to it 
Um, so it's kind of a great honor now to get to work here um, and moving from the fellow to now a staff fellow. So it's quite good. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the society? When did it commence and who were the people involved? Sure. So like many of the other learned societies here in the UK, the Royal Geographical Society gets its start um, as kind of a a dining club for rich white men. Let's let's be blunt about it. That's that's who they were, um, who are interested in a particular discipline, particular topic. Would gather together to talk about the latest geographical research of the day, and so it's from the the this kind of early travellers' clubs um, that the society, the Geographical Society of London, as it, as its original name was, is founded in 1830, and its core purpose is the advancement of geographical science, promoting geography, advancing geography, uh, which is something that's not really changed very much over the years, really. Um, but so it's London-based. It's drawing in people who are interested in geography, travel, and exploration. Um, one of the things, because you know, we talk about this a lot with kind of visiting student groups, those who are studying kind of history of geography, history of travel, and exploration, to be really clear about is that it's very much a colonial colonial organisation. Unsurprisingly, kind of given uh, UK society, UK culture at the time, um, there are very close connections between British geography and British imperialism, British trade, British colonialism throughout the period of the 19th and the 20th centuries. And the society is very closely connected to those things um, over, the, over the course of that history. Um, but very much around kind of the advancement of geographical science um, with exploration as a key part of that, you know, field work and exploration as a key part. Um, other elements in their founding charter in, in 1830 around the establishment of a historic, well, it wasn't historic then, but the establishment of collections of maps and books and other resources for travellers and geographers to draw upon. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, where we, where we got our start. I would just add that, yeah, for the library itself, it was something that was very important to a lot of the members from the very beginning um, to have basically a reference collection that could be used to plan expeditions but also has also historically been used as Sarah alluded to um, by government and by the imperial authorities to plan expeditions to colonies and things like that to work on boundary commissions we have a lot of work on borders and things like that um, so we're very upfront about about that kind of imperial past um, and then that that we'll talk about this as we move forward, that that has shifted um, in terms of who's using our library, but also what the library is focusing on. So instead of kind of collecting with a view to actively help expeditions go out, now we're very, very interested in the history of exploration um, and the history of the geographic discipline, which is much more in line with what we do as a society today. How has the purpose of the society changed through the years? So I think that core purpose of advancing geographical science hasn't changed. We talk about it slightly differently now. We kind of unpack that a little bit in terms of it's about supporting geographers. It's about uh, supporting geography as a discipline um, and advance, you know, supporting the development of geographical knowledge. So kind of unpacking that statement a little bit. Um, so that hasn't changed. Possibly some of the activities have um, but we still have collections, we still have publications, we have events, we have lectures. A lot of the, a lot of that activity hasn't changed very much. What has changed very dramatically over the years, and particularly in the last 20 to 30 years, is the range of audiences that we work with, the range of people that we work with to kind of showcase and share geography with, uh, whether that's people studying geography at school level, you know, all the way through from kind of um, age 11 all the way through to university level. Um, whether that's um, academics, like the people I mostly work with in the research and higher education team, uh, professionals who are using their geographical skills in the workplace or in the field, and so on. And so there, some of the different, some of the activities that we do are newer and kind of exciting and a lot of fun. And we work, you know, closely together with our colleagues in the different teams. Um, but 
also kind of the kind of people for maybe thinking a bit more demographically, you know, in terms of like Katie and I are both now here at the organization. We were not, women were not allowed to be part of the organization until 1913. Really, you know, women could not join the fellowship of the organization until 1913. Uh, there's a bit of a kerfuffle about 20 years before that when they admitted some women and then said, nope, that's enough. Can't have any more in for now. Um, but, you know, like so 100 years ago, Katie and I would not be able to be part of the organization. Thankfully, hopefully, has changed. Um, and you know other kind of diversity as well in terms of who's represented who's included who's got who's invited to have a seat at the table that has expanded dramatically beyond where we were when we started in 1830 and i think that's brilliant and for the best and we're always exploring kind of the histories of the royal society and then obviously the history of exploration the way in which we've supported expeditions in search of the the nile um and throughout central asia and the poles and things like that that gets a lot of the press and a lot of the excitement but we are um, interested and very proud of our history actually about getting geography taught in all UK schools. The RGS was central to that. And the same with um, instilling geography chairs um, and positions throughout UK universities. So that education background is something that's really core to our mission and that has only become more important in recent years, both in terms of what Sarah does uh, in reaching out to universities and higher education. We have a huge education team here that reaches out to K through 12 um, and does a lot with A-levels and GCSEs and things like that. And down here in the collections group, um, we also have tons of school groups that come through. We're constantly creating exhibitions to show people. So I think education has become really core to the the mission of the society and that's education about geography as well as the history of this organization which we see kind of as all one connected thing yeah i mean just to build on katie's point we've got an event in the building today for geography teachers to help them think through how they teach sustainable development we've got one of our colleagues from higher education has come in to help lead that class for them um but that's brilliant you know there's 30 of them they'll go into schools they'll you know share that knowledge with their students and i think that is so key that kind of that pipeline effect of making sure there are lots of young people who are keen and enthusiastic about geography who are then going to take it into their future careers whether that's through higher education but into a whole range of other workplaces where people are using their geographical skills i mean this might be something we come back to in a, in a, in a little bit but um geography is so relevant to so many of the issues that are facing us globally today and we really want people who are fully equipped to be able to tackle those across a whole range of different sectors different kind of uh, jobs different employment opportunities and so we want we want them taking geography so that they're well situated to kind of understand and take that on so yeah the work of the schools team is absolutely foundational kind of that that educational purpose which as katie says has been part of what the society does for well over you know 100 150 years can you tell us about some of the most famous members throughout the centuries and how they have contributed to the scholarship of exploration and geographical studies? Yeah, so I mean, we can we can do the big names if we want. Um, Livingston it was one of our members, and we have a lot of his um, things here in the society, including uh, the first drawing uh, by a European of, of Victoria Falls. Um, he named Victoria Falls. So we have a lot of collections that support these very famous names, including Randolph Fiennes, um, so we have all of those going throughout the 19th and the 20th century. But I think the fellows and the members that actually interest Sarah and I most are those that maybe don't get as much play. Um, so I'll let Sarah speak to people like Gertrude Bell, which is what her area of research is. Um, but something that I think is really fascinating are the other activities that the society sustains. So we actually, because we have a large collection and always have had, um, we have one of the largest private map collections in the world. We also have a large instrument collection. And so I'm always fascinated, and we've actually had a doctoral project about this, 
about our instrument collection and how those were lent out to expeditions and then came back. So we have certain sextants that have been around the world more times than most people. Um, so I think those material cultural history stories that we can tell are really important. And at the same time, a lot of the work that we're doing around a project called Hidden Histories um, that focuses more on women and maybe um, underrepresented groups that are also very, very um, present within our collections, but you maybe have to use a different kind of critical lens to be able to look at them. So one project that we're extremely proud of and that we really, really want to continue the work of is another collaborative doctoral award, so a PhD that was awarded recently to a wonderful scholar named Joy Slapnig, who's a curator now, um, and she focused on indigenous mapping in the collections. So looking at all the types of mapping that have come into our library over time um, that were usually made for colonial purposes, but have the imprint of or mention or were used collaboratively by indigenous peoples from all around the world. And so we have some fabulous maps by all sorts of peoples. Joyce focused specifically on Southeast Asia. Um, so we have a lot of great objects like that that can tell many, many more stories about a much more diverse um, group of people than usually those kind of big names like Cook and Livingston and things like that, of course. I will say Cook wasn't a member. I should have not said him. Uh, Cook, <laughs> predates. Cook predates the society by quite a bit, but I promise you a lot of our early members especially revered Cook and he was kind of a hero to them. Yeah. And, you know, I should note as well, we say instruments. We don't mean musical instruments. We mean surveying instruments. So as Katie says, things like theodolites and sextants. Um, and yeah, I mean, as as you might expect, as as you can see if you come to it can visit us in London at least at the moment and kind of see as you walk around this building you see from the portraits on the walls a lot of the kind of in inverted commas I'm making the dreaded quote marks kind of the great and the good of heroic exploration were involved with the society at some point so we have you know Katie's mentioned some of the African explorers people like David Livingston Richard Burton um, but also a lot the society was very keenly interested in polar exploration so men like uh, Robert Felton Scott, Ernest Shackleton and so on, uh, a lot of the kind of the big names. But, but as Katie says, one of the things that, I mean, it really interests me, but it interests a lot of other scholars who are working on the history of exploration is to move kind of slightly beyond the big names. We, we know a lot about them. They're fascinating. They're interesting. Their books are often very compelling to read. But it's, it's, it's taken that step beyond to look at the others who are involved in exploration. So whether that's um, the others who were on the expedition teams of those big names. I mean, we think about Ernest Shackleton because he led that endurance expedition. But it's really fascinating to think about people like Tom Crean, who's another member of the expedition, and what you know, what they felt, what he felt about on that expedition when they're trapped in the ice. So it's bringing out the other, the other, the other members of this kind of cast of players, I guess, on each of these expeditions, and that very much includes the the local and indigenous people that were often very key to kind of the survival of these expeditions. I mean, one of the really great examples examples of that are the Sherpas who are involved in Everest expeditions and, you know, those expeditions to try and climb Everest in the 20s, the 30s, the 1950s, uh, 1953, the successful summit. Um, it's really important to kind of include them because those expeditions would not have happened without them. They're a really key part of the story. They're a really interesting part of the story. Um, and I think one of the other things that's quite fascinating as well, there's a phrase um, that gets used quite a bit in the history of exploration, kind of smaller stories, which, you know, this is how you bring in the stories of women who might have done some really fantastic fieldwork or exploration projects. They're not the big names, but they're still really cool. They have really fantastic accounts, you know, often, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, they're very similar to the male colleagues. They're usually white upper middle class. You know, they can be quite colonial as well. You read it with those lenses in mind, but they're, it's kind of going beyond the stories that many of us are already familiar with to kind of draw in some of these hidden histories, these smaller stories, which are still really fascinating. And I think give us a much fuller and more accurate 
understanding of these histories of exploration of what was actually going on, um, how things were happening and just kind of a, a richer, fuller understanding of it. And also kind of one that's messy and situated and people are being people and things are, you know, sometimes going a bit wrong. And yeah, um, I just think it's it, it, rather than trying to t- tell a story that's kind of straightforwardly heroic and just making things a bit messier and a bit more complicated at the same time. Can you tell us a bit about the current building in South Kensington and what your day-to-day work is like at the society? Sure. So um, this is one of the things when we have visiting student groups, I get to take them around the building and tell them about it. So, you know, stop me if I start going on and on and on about this. Um, Where we're based in South Kensington, we're at the top of Exhibition Road, which means we're next to some of the biggest cultural institutions in the UK. We've got the Natural History Museum, uh, the V&A, the Science Museum just down the road, which is fantastic, Um, which makes it really nice to work, particularly because we're right on Hyde Park. Um, Really nice, but going and having your lunch in the park. Um, The building's kind of Three buildings in one, really. Um, the original 19th century building is the is from 1974. It's this massive kind of brick edifice, this gorgeous kind of massive building uh, with kind of a big stern forbidding entrance. It's built as this kind of Victorian country house for the Lowther family, uh, who the society isn't really connected with other than we bought the building off them in 1913 when the society moved here. And we did that because the society, throughout the 19th century, the society didn't have its own lecture theatre, so it was always having to hire spaces. So they really wanted to build their own lecture theatre. So they did that in, um, they moved here in 1913, they raised funds, the First World War kind of got in the way of that. So it was until 1930 that they opened the 1930 extension, which has got the big lecture theatre and all of these Art Deco features. So as you're walking around, you can see kinds of the the beautiful curved arches um, in, in that part of the building. And then finally, we've got the very modern part of the building, which was opened about 20 years ago in 2004. As part of this major program of work for us called Unlocking the Archives, which was really about, you know, literally opening, reorientating ourselves onto Exhibition Road so that we're part of this, you know, this thoroughfare of kind of culture and of participation, lots of people walking up and down and kind of coming in, you know, welcome, physically welcoming people into the building, but also welcoming them into the collections, welcoming, welcoming them into the society. And it's at that time, a lot of our work really got going with schools, with professionals, you know, all of these different communities and audiences that we work with uh, today. Um and in terms of day-to-day work, um, we're here kind of quite flexibly at the moment. It's, it's a nice place to work. I mean, I've already mentioned uh, there isn't any air conditioning because it's a listed building in central London, and that can be a bit tricky on a day like today. I try and make excuses to go hide down in, in the collections where we've got air-conditioned stores and spend some time with Katie, kind of like in, in, in the nice, cool stores where we keep the valuable items. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a nice place to work. Um, yeah, Katie, do you want to come in? Sure. Um, so we are very lucky that we get to take care of a historic collection in a historic building. Uh, So the reading room is in that newer part of the building, the 2004 extension. And uh, because of that extension, we are a private library collection, but we are a publicly open library. Um, So we are open every day from 10 to 5, and we welcome people to come in. Um, And it's a public collection, and it is an open research collection. So you're welcome to come in, look at our catalog, and then depending on the staffing for the day, uh, we can help you to pull up some items that you might want to see. Um, that includes things we've already mentioned that are in the society, in the collection. We have over a million maps, which is my main area that I take care of. Um, we also have 30,000 atlases and we have a fair number of globes that are hanging around the building as well. So those are all the things that I am both promoting and protecting as a collection. Um, so we do a lot of cataloging and the librarian side of things to make sure that these things are accessible to people and that they can be found. Um, but then we also do a lot of curation. So we put together a lot of exhibitions. Um, we do online exhibitions through our website. And we do a lot of education and outreach work, which we've mentioned so far. 
um, which is really, really fun. And then a large part of what I do is also making sure that our collection um, of maps specifically is connected to other collections around the world. So London has a lot of other map collections, including the British libraries, which is, depending how you count it, probably the second or the third largest in the world. Um, so making sure that we are aware of these other map collections, that we're connecting with them, that we're talking about best practices with other curators. So just making sure that our collections, which are world class, are being um, taken care of um, in that way. And that also includes, of course, um, very current discussions that all museums and libraries are having about things like repatriation, about colonial collecting and looting, and how we approach those objects um, in the 21st century. So that, those are all conversations that we are having both outside the building and within the building itself. Um, it is just a great place to work. I do get to work down in the lower levels of the building. That's where most of our collections are housed. Um, which is great because it is much cooler down here. Um, and it is wonderful every day to get to walk past. We have two penguins in the collection. So you get to say hello to the taxidermy penguins every day. Um, get to say hello to your favorite portraits as they go throughout the building. Um, and we actually are actively uh, reinterpreting some of the ways in which the building um, is being presented to the public. Right now, there isn't a lot of interpretation panels or information around the building. So just from the map side of things, Upstairs, we have three very large wall maps that are mounted on the wall, each of which has a really fascinating history. Um, one is the first map that was made um, by Chinese people, but on a Western projection. It's called the Ricci map. It was made with a Jesuit priest um, around the turn of the 17th century, so right around 1600. And we have one of very few examples of that in the world. And then we have a couple of other wall maps up there that we want to make sure that when people visit the building, they can not only say, wow, that looks amazing, that they can read a bit about it and more understand that history. And then hopefully, if they know something about that object, that they can then feed that back to us. So we're hoping to make the whole building a little bit more interactive and responsive for the many different publics that we uh, cater to and that we welcome through our doors just to follow up on Katie's point there, I think it's really important. I mean, I've been working in society 13 years. Obviously, I feel very comfortable here, but I want everybody who walks through those doors to feel that same sense of welcome. So we will, we are going to be looking at the portraits about what's on the walls. Um, more in terms of, as Katie says, kind of adding um, interpretation, making sure it's clear who is that person and why they're relevant to the history of the organisation, um, just to make sure that the place is kind of as welcoming as possible and as, as kind of legible as, as possible, that you don't just walk and think, who are these people? People. I don't know who they are. I don't belong here. But that you kind of actively invited in to participate in in the conversation that is the building. How does the Royal Geographical Society compare with other well-known exploration organizations like the Explorers Club in New York City and the Harvard Travelers Club in Boston, Massachusetts? I think um, obviously there's a lot of shared history in terms of the focus on kind of exploration as an activity, kind of travel as an activity. Those have been very key parts of what the society has done over the years. I think possibly where we differ, particularly nowadays, is it's very much about geography and it's the different those different audiences that we've talked about in terms of its schools, its professionals. Uh, you can become a chartered geographer who's kind of demonstrating that they're using geographical skills and we've got people working on things like remote sensing, GIS, um, all these kind of different applications. So I think, you know, the exploration in a very wide sense in terms of you know that sense of awe and wonder and kind of an open to new experiences is very much still a part of our work um but i think you know there, there are maybe some differences in terms of how you know for, front and foremost we're a learner society and a professional body um and i think it's the work that we do is slightly it's adjacent to the work that some of these other exploration the other exploration clubs and societies do 
Um, and we, we have lots of things that we offer to both to our members, but also to other people who are involved with us. You know, we, we have a grants program. We have lots of networks that people can get involved in, whether that's the academic research groups that I lead, but also kind of our regional committees, our regional networks for kind of public audiences and public engagement and all of the resources that we, we, we share with people. Um, so, you know, well, I think, you know, the IGS is very much kind of like is and always has been part of kind of like a network of networks and we're connected with lots of kind of sister organizations and lots of you know peer organizations as well um, which is really fantastic to be part of this this great web of kind of geography and exploration and all these kind of interconnected things yeah definitely i think that the key word there is that we are a learned society which is this um in some ways not uniquely british but it is quite a british institution um that is uh, a learned body that's focused on a particular what we now call disciplines, although some like the Royal Society were founded before that was a correct historical term. Um, and so as geography as a discipline has changed over time, so too have the things we've been interested in. So exploration is certainly an important part of our history and is why we do have a lot of congruences with something like the Travelers Club or the Explorers Club, because the way in which geography has developed as a discipline, we also have kind of a lot of divergences from them. And you can see that in the collection specifically that we do have amazing sketch manuscript maps from people like Henning Speak and the wonderful ones from Gertrude Bell and even from Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, we also then are going to have a huge amount of maps from the Ordnance Survey um, and from the uh, Survey of India because uh, we have these strong ties to government and so we got a lot of their maps as well. I mentioned the boundary commissions. We end up with a lot of these government commission maps because fellows served on the commissions. Um, so I think if you look at our collections, that's a good indication of the way in which the discipline of geography has changed over time. Um, and that's really similar to the way in which our different foci have um, evolved over time and really, I think, uh, diversified over time and just have multiplied, really. So exploration is just kind of one facet of all the things that the society is doing today, but also actually has done in the past as well, which I think makes sets us apart a little bit. So we are not primarily an exploration society. We are geographical society to which exploration historically has been hugely important. What are the requirements for membership to the RGS? Can you tell us about the membership process for any listeners who might be interested in joining? <laughs> we're, we're always welcoming new members and fellows. Um, so we actually have two different um, types of uh, membership, one of which is fellowship. That's kind of the famous FRGS letters that you'll see after people's names. So fellows of the Royal Geographical Society. So fellows are those that have a passion for and are contributing actively to geography, to the study of geography. And you can show that via your training, via your professional work, uh, via research and publications, or via some sort of similar activity. You can kind of choose your own adventure there and explaining why you think you should be a fellow. You also can become a fellow if you've been a continuous member um, for five years. So that fellowship level um, is there. And then with that, you're going to get access to our amazing research groups we have. I think we have over 30 research groups that are focused on a variety of different topics and they have their own programming and events. And they also um, bring events back here to the society and provide a really important professional network for everyone who's even remotely connected to geography, very broadly understood. Uh, we have grants, we have professional advice that people can tap into. Uh, you can come down and use the foil reading room, so come hang out with me. Uh, you can use our lovely members room, which is actually our old library, um, so we're also very connected up to there. And then, of course, we uh, publish scholarly journals, and then we have events that you would have access to. So that's the fellowship level which you apply to, you send in your CV, and you do need one um, fellow nominator. But if you don't actually know someone who's a fellow, you can just say that and we'll help you 
um, to find someone. So it's a very it's a very open process. It's not kind of closed and secretive. Um, and there's no one actually there's not a secret meeting where they're electing people and holding up hands. Like that's not how that's done at all. It's a very kinder, gentler system than most people would imagine. And then we also have the membership level, which is our our much broader and more open level. Um, and that is for literally everyone, just anyone interested in a little bit in anything um, geographically focused, we more than welcome them. And that is literally just sign up and then you pay um, the annual fee. And for that, you get um, a lot of the same things. You get our geographical magazine, which is quite a fun magazine that has a, a good mix of things. You get to come to all of our events, including our Monday night lectures, which is our flagship events. And those are largely also available online now. So you can either attend them remotely or you can watch them back later, which I think is a great um, perk because you don't always get to go to all the events you want to go to. You also get to come in, use the reading room, use the members room for free, and then get to just tap into this real sense of community that we're really proud of here at the RGS. And I will say with membership and with fellowship as well, we have for a fellowship, we have associate fellows, which is more for early career and postgraduate fellows. We also have a student membership um, for people who are still studying and who are interested. And that, is, of course, comes with reduced rates. And then we also have school and corporate memberships. So really kind of whatever sort of body or entity or individual you are, we have ways that you can get involved here at the RGS. In our ever-changing world, what do you see as being the future destiny and purpose of the Royal Geographical Society in the coming years and decades? Will the RGS eventually assimilate research and exploration of other planets into its mission? Oh, I, I, I don't know about that. I think for me, it's really about making sure people are well equipped to face the challenges of this coming century. And geography is so well placed to do that. The skills that you develop as a geographer, the kind of the expertise that geographers bring, the kind of the cutting edge research and field work that people are doing are really fantastic for kind of addressing all kinds of challenges that we're facing today. I mean, the big one, obviously, is climate change, the climate crisis. But there are lots and lots of others as well where geography is really, really relevant. I mean, Katie's talked about kind of the historic boundary commissions, but, you know, kind of politics, political geography continues to be incredibly relevant. Uh, lots around kind of development, geography, water, food, you know, land access, all, all these kind of things. The geographers have so much to contribute and geography has so much to contribute. So I would really hope to see us and kind of our, our sister organizations, others that we work with, kind of continuing to do that. I mean, th just this this summer, um, I mentioned that as part of my role, I run our annual academic conference. We're going to have about 2,000 geographers coming together to talk about climate change and how geography can help kind of address climate change, how climate change is changing how we do geography. Uh, that's at the end of August. Um, registration is open, folks, if you would like to sign up. Um, but that is just such a wonderful opportunity, like people gathering together, showcasing what we can do when we come together as a community to address these really big issues. So yeah, I'd like to see more of that. And, you know, possibly kind of exploration of other planets, um, but, you know, dealing with what we've got going on down here first, I think. Is the conference going to be live streamed? People can sign up to attend online. We're, going, we're having hybrid and online participation as well as people joining us here in South Kensington. And for those that sign up to attend online, uh, we'll be live streaming all the plenaries. I'm, I'm quite excited about the plenaries, actually, because we're experimenting with what we're calling a hub model, where we're going to have a day of plenaries. The first one kind of starts in Australia. There'll be people in London, but there'll be people in Australia and kind of joining from, from kind of the, the Far East. Um, and then we're kind of moving the plenary around the globe. So it's all, you know, the emphasis is on bringing people together from international nationally using all the remote technology we now have available to us that will be live streamed all of the kind of keynotes will be live streamed um so yeah if people are interested to do sign up and just to back up what sarah was saying the society has always been focused on the promotion and the centrality of geography 
um, to all of our lives. And so we, I think at the society, what we're really focused on is trying to banging the drum for the relevance of geography for individuals. So that's with our chartered geography program and all the education outreach we do saying, this is what geography can do for you. But I think a lot of our programming and a lot of our collections work also says this is what geography can do for the planet. And so we have a lot of programming that is focused on things like climate change around the ways in which we recently had one actually on sewage and waste and how that's really important to the urban city. Um, so really any and all kind of ways in which both human and physical geography are helping us to learn about our planet, helping us to preserve our planet in the future. Those are all things that we're really interested in. And of course, those can then connect to outer space topics. So one of the best books I've read recently is called Placing Outer Space, An Earthly Ethnography of Other Worlds by Lisa Masseri that looked at um, extraplanetary spaces that are here on Earth. So something like the Mars training, um, which is in the middle of the desert in the U.S., um, so I think that we definitely are interested in outer space, but as it really connects to the ways in which we're also working here um, on Earth now. Um, but I think there's obviously connections outside of our own planet for that. And we need to be aware of kind of our impact as it extends well beyond our terrestrial borders. Sorry, just to follow up on that. I mean, as part of our public engagement activities, I, I just remembered we were involved in a podcast, uh, 39 Ways to Save the Planet, and kind of bringing together experts on all these different ways that people can, you know, come together to save the planet, which is really fantastic. Uh, it was a BBC podcast, so people should check that out as well. Lastly, one question I like to ask all our guests is if you have a book, film, or documentary you would recommend to our listeners. I think we've both been quite cheeky, and we've both picked two. So we'll we'll leave it to you whether you'd like to include both of them. I have two. The first this one is a book by somebody called Avril Madril, who was my PhD supervisor, um, which is called Complex Locations, which was all about kind of mapping out British female geographers in the 19th and 20th centuries who had been left out of a lot of the histories of geography and histories of exploration, um, which I think has been really important for those of us who work on the history of geography going forward in terms of bringing in these forgotten figures, these marginalized people, particularly women, and certainly was very influential on my own work. And then the other one... Um, that I really enjoy in terms of it's fi it's a fiction it's fiction it's not nonfiction uh, but Michelle Paver's dark matter novel which is kind of drawing on some of those 1930s Arctic expeditions particularly I think the British Arctic air route expedition I mean throwing in a lot of spooky stuff as well it's kind of it's a, it's a ghost story it's a horror novel uh, as if you know some aspects of exploration weren't terrifying enough <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed that i think it's so evocative of kind of what it may have felt like to be involved in one of these expeditions it's drawing in all this interesting kind of wider social context as well uh, i just really recommend that I, I i really enjoyed that definitely i have so many um but for a non-fiction i was really impressed recently with felipe fernandez armesto's the straits um which is beyond the myth of magellan so rethinking what we know and what we think we know about the um, first european circumnavigation of the globe if I can be very cheeky, um, I'm also totally addicted to the podcast Time to Eat the Dogs by Michael Robinson, um, which is uh, about the history of exploration, and it is super, super fascinating. Uh, and then in terms of fiction, uh, Alex Harrow is a historically trained fantasy author, and she's most famous for The Thousand Doors of January, which is a novel. But my favorite is a short story she wrote called The Autobiography of a Traitor and a Half-Savage which is actually about um, a female cartographer in the 19th century who is mixed race indigenous. Um, and it's a really, really good short story. So highly recommend all of those. To all you listeners, you can learn more about the Royal Geographical Society at www.rgs.org. Dr. Evans and Dr. Parker, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us at the roundtable tonight. 
You were both fantastic guests, and I wish you all the best in your current and future studies of exploration. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at the Explorer's Roundtable. The Explorer's Roundtable was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com.